You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Don't Look Up wasn't my favorite movie last year. But it may be the one that stuck with me the most. If you missed it, Don't Look Up was a black comedy about a pair of astronomers who discover a planet-killing comet heading right for Earth. But the main thing is that the scientists try to warn the world about this existential threat, and no one cares. There's no response. There's absolutely no response. Why are people terrified? What do we have to say? What do we have to do? It's a brutal indictment of a society drunk on its own diversions. But one of the harsher critiques is aimed at tech elites and the uber-rich. In the final scene, spoiler alert, a handful of rich and powerful types flee the Earth to save themselves and start some kind of colony on another planet. Bio chambers were 58% successful, which is much better than anticipated. I think this is going to work out quite well. quite well. And let's just say... It doesn't end well. I wonder, are those feathers or are they scale? It's just a movie, of course, but like all great satires, it's full of truth and it may be closer to reality than you think. I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Douglas Rushkoff. He's a media theorist at Queens College in New York and one of the more interesting voices we have on the intersection of tech and culture. His new book is called Survival of the Richest, Escapist Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. It's a strange and darkly funny book about how the richest people in the country are preparing for the apocalypse. It's a revealing look into the mindset of the ultra-wealthy, not just millionaires, but billionaires. People who, in so many ways, have been complicit in pushing the world towards catastrophe, but seem incapable of grappling with that fact or doing anything to avert the doomsday scenarios that motivate them. For some, the goal isn't just to escape the mess on Earth. It's to transcend the human condition altogether, whatever the hell that means. But I started by asking Rushkoff to tell me the story of his encounter with a small group of billionaires who invited him out to the desert for a secret meeting. 
Well, I mean, you know, usually I'm called out to kind of play uh, intellectual dominatrix to the wealthy. They invite someone like me, kind of whatever I am, Marxist, anarcho-syndicalist, <laughs> radical, Mondo 2000, original, cyberdelic nethead, to kind of yell at the businesses that came and took my net and turned it into a NASDAQ stock exchange extension. Okay. How does one receive an invitation to this kind of thing? You get an email, a phone call, does uh, some dude just show up with like an enormous check and you say yes and then they shuttle you out or? It just came, it was like one email with a price tag of like $40,000. It's like $40,000? That's like half my annual salary as a professor. Fuck, I'll go and talk for $40,000. I'll talk to Ayatollah Khomeini for $40,000. But this wasn't even nefarious. This wasn't even a dictator. This was just wealthy people. I didn't think it was going to be billionaires. I thought it was just going to be the regular tech bro investor crowd. That's interesting. And I'm in the green room waiting to go on. And instead of bringing me out and miking me up, they bring these five guys in and they sit around this table and start peppering me with all these questions about where they should put their money, like Bitcoin or Ethereum, virtual reality or augmented reality. And I'm thinking I'm honored because I have predicted some things. But in terms of those bets, I'm always wrong. I was like CompuServe, not AOL, MySpace, not Facebook. You know, I'm wrong, wrong, wrong. I'm imagining five older white guys in like Patagonia fleeces. Is that about right? Yeah, except one of them was a younger white guy in a Patagonia fleece. <laughs> and one of them was um, Indian. But then they eventually got to like Alaska or New Zealand. I'm like, are you asking what I think you're asking? And the whole rest of the hour was about their doomsday plans, their bunker scenarios. Where should they put their bunker? How do they deal with water? I don't know for sure whether they called me out because they wanted to speak about their bunkers or whether the bunkers and their preparations just became the topic. But it certainly was the one that they were by far the most interested in talking about. I mean, five minutes on everything else and an hour on just that. I honestly thought, and I didn't say this in the book or anything, but I thought I was being punked. You know, I thought some cool, weird Twitter enemy, whatever, had staged this whole thing. And these were fake billionaires and they were trying to like get footage. Like, but no, they were totally serious. And they started talking about how they had like Navy SEALs contracted to fly out and become their guards, like, you know, with like copters basically waiting. And I'm thinking like, why Navy SEALs instead of Army Rangers? Why do you think your Navy SEALs are going to take care of you after the event when your money is worthless? Is it fair to say that the people in that room absolutely believe that the world is going to end fairly soon? Is that just a guiding assumption? I asked them that. What do you know? What do you know about these probabilities? And one of them said that he had some actuarial study and they decided that there was a 20% chance of a cataclysmic event occurring in their lifetime. 20. 20%. Okay. So they decided he would take 20% of his assets and apply them to that scenario. <laughs> it's logical. As one does. As one does, right. It's very interesting to me, and this is something you kind of ponder over a little bit. You're a media and social theorist, really. As you write, if they wanted to test their bunker plans, they could have hired um, a security person from the Pentagon or, or Blackwater, right? You're not a disaster preparedness guy, but that's not why they want to talk to you, right? Like they want to talk to you because they seem to be searching for 
philosophical justifications for what they're doing. So, so what are they actually looking to justify and what did they want to hear from you on that front? I think what they're trying to do is justify their mindset, you know, which is what I started to call it. They want to justify an approach to life where they need to earn enough money to insulate themselves from the reality they're creating by earning money in that way. Can I build enough technology to protect myself from the externalized damage that that technology is creating? The most recent example I saw was an article that Cory Doctorow wrote where he was really mad at Epson printers because there's a certain model of printer and they brick it after like 10,000 pages or something. And their justification is that there's some little sponge in there that's absorbing the extra ink. And then when that sponge gets filled, it might not absorb the ink and it could spill a little under the printer. So we'll just brick the whole printer. You can't replace the two cent sponge. We'll brick the thing. So there's a dude, I'm assuming it's a dude, at Epson Printers, who's able to make the decision in his head. I understand that someone is going to have to send kids into a mine to get their rare earth metals, to get more materials, to build another printer. And I know the printer that's being thrown out is going to have to be thrown on a toxic waste pile somewhere in Brazil, where some family is going to have to dig in poisonous chemicals to get the rare earth pieces that are renewable out of it. And it's going to accelerate the rate at which the climate collapses. But the margin that I'm going to make on selling this extra printer is enough to protect me from this disaster that's going to come anyway. Mm. So even if it comes six months earlier because of this one printer strategy, I'm going to be two years ahead because of the profit. And I think that's sort of what they're looking at. Does society work this way? You know, and they figure because I'm sort of a historian, well, how did it happen in Rome and Egypt? And when civilizations end, how do the people insulate themselves from the collapse of that civilization? Is it possible? And what's your relationship to it? They're testing the fundamental notions they have of what they call self-sovereignty. What exactly did they mean by that? I know what both those words mean, but what do they mean when they put them together like that? Well, I don't think they really know. They think of self-sovereignty as total and absolute independence from the corrupt institutions of our world, ah. that I am self-sovereign, that I can get my own seasteading raft and go out and form my own nation. I see. But really what it is, is end state colonization, right? They've colonized everything around them. They've colonized territories. They've colonized resources. They've colonized people. You know, they've colonized the internet. And self-sovereignty to me means they've colonized themselves, right? I am the sovereign of that dude, me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you can objectify not just women, not just your kids, not just your employees and your consumer. You can objectify yourself. Yeah. It's like the last frontier. Is there a consensus on how the world is going to end? No, there's all these different ones. They had a bunch. They listed electromagnetic pulse, pandemic, climate, social unrest, economic inequality. Climate is the one that's actually occurring. Yeah. For a lot of these dudes, they didn't really take things seriously until Trump became president. And then they kind of saw, oh, man, we really lit a fuse on something. And they realized, oh, shoot, I'm going to have to get out of here. They're like the coyote 
in Roadrunner. There's that moment where the coyote makes this whole trap for the Roadrunner and the Roadrunner takes the thing and then goes and then the coyote's like, what? Why did this trap work? And he goes and jumps and jumps and jumps on it and then the thing breaks finally. He realizes he's like suspended over a cliff and he goes, uh-oh. That's the moment the billionaires are in right before it falls. Then they come to someone like me. It's like, is it this bad? Am I really going to fall? Am I justified in trying to break my fall by any means necessary, even if it means using the bodies of small children? Um, is there some philosophical thing? The streetcar problem? The trolley problem? Prisoner's dilemma? So that's why they bring someone like me in. And I'm like, no, dudes, you just fucked the fuck up here. So the secret meeting in the desert with these five so-called lesser billionaires, that was kind of the catalyst for your whole book which talks about not just these five billionaires, but also about how wealthy Silicon Valley tech bros in general are fascinated with apocalypse prepping. Is there like a whole industry out there for this kind of thing? Are there a lot of companies who offer luxury bunkers for super rich people? I got a lot more emails from companies offering bunker services than I did from people looking for bunker services, if that's any indication. The companies are looking for the lone millionaire billionaire who wants to build an almost 1950s fallout shelter. So there's different kinds, like the one that seemed the most real was called Rising S Company. And they're out in uh, Kansas or somewhere, and they use shipping containers and bury them under the ground. And they've been doing it for years. If there's going to be a tornado or some bad thing, and you got to get under there for a couple of days, you go in one of those. And then they're like, oh, well, now that there's rich people worried, what if we do like a super deluxe one? We'll take like six shipping containers and attach them to each other and bury them all at once. And now you get like the royal suite. And they'll put different things in them. Like here's a pool table in this one and video games in that one. But then there's some more advanced ones. There's one that tries to convert old missile silos into these weird underground dwellings. And there's one in Europe that I like that had these really nice bunkers. You buy like a share in it and then you get to go in and they have chefs and swimming pools and artificial light and all that stuff. I mean, you look at any of the plans, none of them really would work, even if they got three security guards. And it's like, who's, again, you're paying the chefs and what are they doing with them? They're working for you. Why does that social agreement maintain itself after civilization has collapsed. It only does if you believe that this is just for a year or two. They're nuts. But then one guy emailed me, this guy, J.C. Cole, you know, MAGA guy with all of these stuff he had posted online about the coming collapse. And he wouldn't even use Hillary Clinton's name. He just called her her. But he used to run the Chamber of Commerce in Latvia after the fall of the Soviet Union. So he knew some stuff. And his model was actually close to one that I almost agree with. He's building a real farm outside Pennsylvania, and he's got one in Princeton. And the idea is you pay money to join one of these farms. And then when the shit hits the fan, you're just like an hour from the city. You go to your farm and it's a self-sustainable farm. So it's got biodiesel and chickens and seeds. But the smart thing about him was I was like, aren't you scared of the motorcycle gangs coming with machine guns? And he said, you know, I'm less afraid of that than I am the woman at the end of the driveway holding a baby 
without any food. So his plan, what it involved was you invest in the farm, but you're also investing in an education company that's supposed to be teaching people how to build these self-sufficient, resilient farms throughout the country. And I think it's for that reason nobody's invested in it. You know, any self-respecting billionaire, no, I want all the money going to my survival, not to teaching other people in some cockamamie business plan. These bunkers, you know, there's this company you mentioned in Texas that will build you one of these luxury bunkers that's got a pool and a bowling lane for the nominal fee of $8 million. Right. And the kicker is that they call it the Aristocrat (laughs) series. I mean, you can't make this shit up. You can't. (laughs) The thing that's so wonderful about it for me is it, it helped me see the kind of tech billionaire guys as laughable. How silly they are. I remember I was asking one, he was talking about, I think he got one of the rising S ones, the ones you're talking about in Texas. And he was talking about the indoor heated swimming pool with natural light that he was going to have. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I got a neighbor who's got a swimming pool and I'm always seeing trucks pulling up in front of his house. Like he needs a new heater, needs a new filter. How are you going to be sourcing all those parts for your swimming pool as they wear out? You like 3D printing them? What are you doing for that? And he opens up this little moleskin book and I see him write, swimming pool parts. (laughs) That's the the, thing to work on. Think to ask my bunker consultant. (laughs) I got to say, I find some of this just ridiculous. And just to be clear, you interacted with a bunch of different tech millionaires and billionaires. You don't get their names, but it's more than just those five dudes in the desert. And to hear you describe these encounters, it seems like they not only believe they can survive the apocalypse, but They also believe that they can maintain their lifestyles after the apocalypse. And that kind of cognitive dissonance, I don't know, it's staggering to me. Right. But then flip it around. Maybe they believe they can only maintain their lifestyles with apocalypse. You know, they could certainly only justify their lifestyles with apocalypse. How else can you justify externalizing this much harm to everybody else unless... It was because only a few of you are going to get out. If you are on a sinking Titanic, the only possible option for the non-first class people is to shoot bullet holes in every single lifeboat. Because only then will the wealthy start to think about, oh, how do we actually stop the actual ship from going down, right? And that's what they can't do. They've got this, it's not just a survivalist mentality, but it's such an individualistic mentality. You know, and that's this mindset that I keep talking about that comes both from a bastardized empirical science, a ridiculous understanding of technology, and a staunch adherence to the rules of corporate capitalism, where one dude wins and everybody else loses. You know, nature is this thing you control and contain. Technology gives you choice to be sovereign, and capitalism is about winning. And when you combine those, you you end up like them. But it's a crazy, paranoid, awful place to be. I think it's the same guy with the SEAL team on standby. He's thinking through um, how he can deal with some of these security concerns. And it's like, I can put special combination locks on the food supply, or my personal favorite, I can make the guards wear disciplinary collars in exchange for for their survival. I mean, come on, Doug. It all goes to the fact that they don't believe they can have any real impact on the future. 
I mean, these are investors. Investing is about risk management. They look at the 20% figure that the actuarial guy gave them for this is your risk factor. Okay, the 20% stays 20%. They don't believe there's anything they could do to get that 20% down to 15 or 10 or 5%. They accept the 20% and prepare for that. The billionaire dudes are the most brittle. They're the least imaginative, the least creative. They've got a zero-sum scarcity mentality about the world in which they're living. It just sounds like John Galt drunk on techno-utopianism to me. Yeah, except what a weird utopia to imagine. I remember when I was like nine or 10 years old, I imagine, probably I was mad at my parents. What if everybody else on earth died and I'm the only person around? Then I could go into the Toys R Us and every toy is going to be mine. I understand that. It's just that those sorts of people, I don't know, they've never really had quite this much power before. Their power never reached the sort of existential level that these guys have today. But Any self-respecting prepper, and I've met a lot of them, the real ones, any self-respecting prepper understands the only way to prepare for apocalypse is with a community. These guys realize the first step of any good prepper, other than being prepared yourself, is making sure your neighbors are prepared too. Because if your neighbors aren't prepared, then you're not prepared. They're going to be trying to get your stuff. You want a resilient community. You want to have people you can share with and trade with and work with. Who's got different skills? You want to be in a community. And once you flip it around, like what I joked to the prepper billionaires was the way to make sure your head of security doesn't shoot you between the eyes when you're in the bunker is pay for his daughter's bat mitzvah today. And they kind of got it as a joke because probably their Navy SEALs, not some Jewish guy with a kid getting a bar mitzvah. But I was trying to plant the seed in their heads that okay, so I'm going to be nice to my security guys now so they don't kill me later. How far does that extend? How many people can I be nice to and then maybe not have this apocalypse at all? What if that were the possibility? Wouldn't that be a lot easier than surviving the apocalypse? It really would be. So... Are tech billionaires really trying to solve problems, or are they just trying to escape humanity? That's what I'll ask Rushkoff after a quick break. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. 
Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. Philosophically, what I find curious is some of this weird utopianism inherent in the upper echelons of the tech world. For a lot of them, it's not really about figuring out how to solve problems. It's about transcending the human condition altogether. What in the hell does that even mean, first off? Uh, well, I mean, a lot of them get it from the sort of the zero to one architecture of a lot of digital technology. You know, even Peter Thiel, his book for entrepreneurs is called Zero to One. And the idea is that most people are down here competing. If you're competing, you're a loser. What you really want to do is transcend that competition, go from zero to one. In other words, be one order of magnitude above everybody else. Like what Tim Riley used to say about be web two. You know, everybody on web one, they've all got their dot coms competing with each other. If you're web two, you're aggregating those dot coms. But of course, then if you have a whole bunch of aggregators on web two, now you've got to go to web three and become an aggregator of aggregators. So you keep leveling up one level above. It's what Mark Zuckerberg does when Facebook is a fail and he knows it and he sees it and the whole nation hates him and even Sheryl Sandberg jumps ship. What does he do? I'm going to go meta, right? Drop Facebook like the first stage of a rocket. Let that fall to the earth and I'm going to launch up in the next one or literally like uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, Blue Origin is like the ultimate example of white flight from this you know dying planet. You level up and they got this. If you really want to trace it back, this is Christian transubstantiation. This is what was called cosmism. It was a, originally a philosophy out of Russia. This idea that the way through is like kind of a version of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the self-actualization, except real self-actualization is rising from the chrysalis of matter as pure consciousness. It's that ayahuasca DMT, I am risen, I am Christ consciousness, this new age, total enlightenment, self-realization thing for them, looks the same as self-sovereignty, as self-sufficiency, as I don't need government anymore. I don't need anybody. This is a clubhouse for me and my friends alone. No girls allowed. That writ large as a almost spiritual, technological, philosophical template for how they move through the world. And it's all based basically in science fiction and bizarre New Age spirituality. I mean, is this sort of what you call the mindset? Yes. This kind of fusion of some of the worst elements of scientism and capitalism and technocratic thinking all coming together in this stew of idiocy and delusion? Yes, except while we call it idiocy, many of the people who believe in it are way smarter than us. 
or apparently smarter than us. My thinking about all this started when I got in an argument with Richard Dawkins, who's certainly smarter than me, right? He's fucking Richard Dawkins. He must be. He's a Cambridge biologist guy. You know, he wrote The God Delusion and all. He's smarter than me. But we're in this argument where he's trying to get me to prove that something more than materialism exists. I was arguing, you know, that there's more going on here that meets the eye, that people might be connected, that consciousness may be a shared phenomenon, that it's possible that rather than consciousness being an emergent property of organized matter, that consciousness preceded matter and gave rise to matter. You know, we don't really know. And finally, I, I got to like, you know, what if the universe kind of leans towards something? It's like, oh, well, you're a moralist. They laughed at me and called me a moralist. And of course, 10, 20 years later, you see Richard Dawkins and the other materialist scientists who say the world's getting better from science and technology. They're on the friggin' airplane, the Lolita Express owned by uh, Jeffrey Epstein. And I'm like, okay, so I'm a moralist. What are you? And maybe it's coincidence that you're on that plane and you're not really into the stuff that Epstein's into, but Epstein is attracted to that understanding of science and technology because it helps justify how you can just treat 14, 15, 16-year-old girls like meat. Because human beings are not really alive. We're not really conscious. We're just passive flesh robots responding to memes and genes in an automated way. So Epstein he was building dormitories for girls, right, to live in, for him to impregnate with his seed. That's where the mindset goes. There's nothing really so different about that as being a guy who's willing to send kids into mines to get the rare earth metals to build computers for them to become billionaires. It's an amoral understanding of reality where you dominate nature, dominate women. I mean, it goes back to Francis Bacon, the guy who's credited with inventing empirical science, when he said empirical science will let us take nature by the forelock, hold her down, and submit her to our will. All right, so science is based in a rape fantasy. And it never quite grew up from that desperate need to reduce women, nature, animals, worms. If you could put a number on it, quantize the fucker, you'll get it to stop wriggling, and you can dominate it. That's where they are to this day. I'm not quite sure how to ask this, but I'll try. I mean, listening to you now and, and reading through the book, sometimes I, I can't tell whether this mindset is a kind of somber fatalism or if it's just a inhuman or post-human nihilism. Like, do they even care about human suffering today? Or have they convinced themselves that the ship has sailed and there's nothing they can do but save themselves? They're one level above, dude. If you're one level above... If you're one of those, if you're a self-sovereign individual, then you rise above the suffering of all these masses. No, there's not enough to go around. Sorry. Only a few of us are going to make it through the strange attractor at the end of time. If you have enough nutraceuticals and stoicism workshops and <laughs> you know, whatever else you need, you'll make it. I don't know. I mean, are they sad nihilists or happy nihilists? I think they don't quite look at human beings the same way most of us do. They don't quite look at other living things that way. They don't get an oxytocin response when they look into the eyes of a little baby goat. Something else is going on. I mean, and I found one of the studies that I reference in the book, take a billionaire and put him in an MRI machine and show them a picture of a starving baby. The part of the brain that lights up for most people doesn't light up. You actually lose empathy as you become a billionaire. And we don't know why. It's probably because of the choices you have to make. 
in order to become a billionaire forces you to cut yourself off? That's such a good way to put it. It seems like they already think they've transcended the human condition and the plebs out there are just ones and zeros. Right. It's just fodder. It's just fodder. Right. And it's not new, right? Dictators and conquistadors and all, they've done that from the beginning. We used to look at other peoples that way and nobody batted an eye. When Hobbes told the colonizers of America, you don't have to consider the natives in America human beings. He said that. You know, they're not humans. They're part of the landscape. They're not figures. They are ground. You can look at them the same way you look at the trees and the shrubs and the, you could just pave them over. You could clear cut those people the same way you clear cut a forest. They're part of the landscape and they are not conscious. What's the difference between looking at brown people that way and looking at white people that way? None. The only difference is they're looking at white folks that way instead of just brown folks and women that way. I'm struck by how uninterested they seem to be in the human cost of their actions today, but maybe maybe I'm not. It's an obsession with winning the future and the ones and zeros out there. It's just not part of the moral calculus. Right. It doesn't matter. And they're not all necessarily evil. I mean, you talk to a, a musk or a teal and... Yeah, they have safety plans, and Teal's got his spread in New Zealand, and Musk has his own various solutions, and this one has a plane ready with a pilot at all times and all. And I mean, I know a lot of their plan Bs, but they also have visions for a new world order as well. They do have a techno-solutionist understanding of something after this, where Some of them aren't so bad. I mean, compared to fascism, some of them aren't so violent. I mean, compared to the way things could be with like, you know, warlords and jeeps with machine guns. But they're not just about getting to Mars and escaping. It's more when you read McCaskill's long-termism book, you start to understand it a little bit better. It's not that they hate us so much. It's that when they do a kind of Jeremy Bentham on acid and steroids analysis of the utilitarian promise of our future, there's only 8 billion people alive today, and they're kind of suffering already. But there's going to be like 40 trillion consciousnesses spread out through the heavens. So why does it matter? It's hubris for us to think that we matter compared to all those in the future. And that's sort of where they would go with it. Why do you think you matter so much? You have a chapter in there on Burning Man. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been to Burning Man. I can feel some of the eye rolls in the audience. There was nothing wrong with Burning Man itself, especially <laughs> if you were there before you know 2000. Uh, no, it was 2018, last time I went. Ah. But I bring that up because in the book, I, I think you absolutely nail the ethos of the libertarian tech bro side of it. And I saw it. I heard it. There's this way of thinking about the world where every problem has a clear solution, and the solution naturally is waiting to be discovered by some techno savior who's like a you know an LSD trip away from figuring out how to engineer utopia. And I guess like <laughs> if you think this way, and then you come to the conclusion that the Earth is doomed, then I guess you just pivot and start working on the technological solution that's going to allow you to escape the planet. Right. It's true that the only way to solve engineering problems is with more engineering, right? So 
once you start down the path, it's almost impossible to think that, oh, maybe the solution is less engineering. Maybe it's less of that, but they don't go there. So yeah, you take a tech bro and you give him some ayahuasca down in Burning Man or better, take him to Costa Rica and find a $5,000 shaman for him to get dosed with. And they have this one moment where Earth Mother speaks to them and they realize, oh my God, I've done all this awful shit and everyone's going to die and the planet is speaking to me and I'm so bad and I'm going to change my ways. And blah, blah. By the time they're on the G5 back to Mountain View, they're slowly thinking, okay, maybe the best way to do it is I'll start a new social network that does this. Now, maybe the social network I have is actually kind of doing it. I just got to tweak it that way. Well, actually, maybe I don't need to tweak it at all. So by the time they're home, they've retrofitted whatever technology companies they've already invested in, whatever they're already doing as the solution. Mm -hmm. And if they really are super duper duper super awakened, they just take whatever their techno-solutionist techniques were for convincing people to stay on a social network and say, now I'm going to use those to upgrade humanity to get off social networks. I'm still the sorcerer king wizard of technology manipulating humans, but now I will manipulate people in order to get them to get them to take care of the environment. It becomes self-justifying. I mean, it is so incredibly easy to paint these billionaires as cartoon villains. And trust me, I'm here for it, obviously. Yeah. But surely they see themselves differently. Well, what's their self-conception? How did the people in that room think of their own ambitions and motivations? How are they laundering all this? Right. The people in that room, they are not Musk and Teal. They're not the visionary founders of things. They are money people. Even though they're billionaires, they feel utterly powerless, more powerless than you or I feel about the future. They don't see the future as a thing we build together. They see the future as this inevitability that they can use their money to prepare for. And even those guys, I mean, I don't really see any of them as Dr. Evil as such. I see them, they want to use technology to rebuild the womb. They want a technological bubble that will anticipate their every need and bring it to them before they even know they want it. But the real desire is to be safe and apart from all the people and all the unpredictability. They want to engineer a kind of perfection. And because they've been involved with technology, I understand what it is to go, oh, let's just reboot this thing. If you can do it to a piece of software, why can't we just do it to civilization? Let's blue sky it. Let's throw it on a fucking blockchain. And it's all going to be fine. As long as we account for everything in the code of the blockchain, it'll work. And there's, oh, we can't account for everything, so we'll let the blockchain evolve itself or have with consensus. We can change the blockchain. And then you go, oh, well, they're kind of trying to remake the U.S. Constitution. They just reinvented that idea, you know, only in some digital virtual realm, one step even further removed from human beings negotiating outcomes together. They can't deal with the ambiguity, with the ambivalence. This is right and that's right. It's not a one or a zero. It's kind of both at the same time. And it's, oh, that's so awful. Zuckerberg strikes me as kind of weirdly goofy and naive in all kinds of ways. And Musk, I don't know what the fuck he's doing. I have no idea what he's thinking or, or doing. But then there's someone like Teal. And Teal, to me, actually does seem almost like explicitly cartoon villain guy. I mean, he, he strikes me actually as a kind of accelerationist. He is. He wants to burn this whole thing down and get on with it. Right. 
whatever the fever dream is. But I don't think he likes Trump, but he understands that Trump is a means to an end, right? That Trump will accelerate. Of course, but he's all in on him because he finds him as a useful political instrument, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What they do share in common, though, is this desire to level up, to get to the next level, to wipe the slate clean, to reboot, to refactor, to reformat the hard drive and get to that next thing. Yeah. And what they don't realize is they don't have a theory of change other than a catastrophic one, which is why the metaphor of the billionaires in the bunker still kind of works for them. Mm -hmm. You need the catastrophe in order to get to the thing, the climax. The They watch the Marvel movies. You need the end game, the big fix. And it doesn't work like that, at least as I understand it. There's thousands and thousands of little fixes that are engendered by a more communal understanding of our roles together. It's not one great man that rises above the fray and comes up with a solution and becomes the king. But I, I haven't said this quite in public before, but to a lot of us, it feels like the event has already happened. Ooh, what, what do you mean? You mean we've crossed the ecological threshold or something? What do you, what do you mean? Yeah, well, the people in Pakistan are already walking around up to their waists in water. You know, the ice shelf, is, uh, it's kind of done. It kind of happened. Democracy? I don't know, man. It may be something we could retrieve, but it wasn't really working anyway since, you know, Citizens United, really. If anything, it's sort of been cockamamie. Doug, are you a non-billionaire prepper? Is that what I'm hearing? <sighs> I am a prepper in the sense that I'm making friends with people in my community, that I belong to a community-supported agriculture group, that I do favors for people, that I'm trying to get it so we have one lawnmower on our block that we all share, rather than each family having one minimum viable product Home Depot lawnmower that breaks. But I'm not doing it in order to prepare for an apocalypse. I'm doing it in some ways, in order to prevent one, to make our community more resilient, less dependent on long, brittle supply chains, more here for each other in crisis. Uh, how do we build models for more equitable enterprise? Is there a possibility, and I know it sounds this sounds pie in the sky, but is there a possibility that we could form communities where each person doesn't need to earn enough money individually to take care of themselves when they're too old to earn money anymore. The 401k plan may be the single most debilitating thing. So many people justify so much of what they do around the premise that you need to earn enough money in order to be able to retire. That's a scam. That's not a normal society that would have that. Coming up after one last quick break, does any of this destructive billionaire mindset filter into the culture? Does it show up in the technologies that they create and we use? Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments, a wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, 
anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts, like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Do you see this mindset filtering down throughout the culture in that way? Do you see it making its way into the technology that we use? How is it showing up in the lives of the rest of us? For sure. I mean, I saw it the most, I guess, during the height of the COVID pandemic, when all of a sudden people felt less guilty about having an Amazon Prime account or fresh direct delivery or one of those little doorbells with a video thing on it. There are basically people were getting used to the idea of I'm going to live in a world where I'm safe in my little bubble and a bunch of poorer people are going to be out there bringing me meat, and that's the way it is. I mean, that was actually what made me want to write the book, was when I saw, oh, this psychology is filtered down certainly to the upper middle class, where I knew people that had houses out in the Hamptons or in the Berkshires, and they were like, oh, we're just going to go there. I'm glad we put in an office for Martin, you know, <laughs> in the summer home, because now he could do everything by Zoom from there. And well, we got a private tutor for the kids. And it's like, all right, so you have an excuse to withdraw from society, to McMansionize yourself. And that seemed to me a sad development. I do a lot of shows on this podcast about how messed up and perilous things are. And, you know, I often find myself thinking that, yeah, we have maybe crossed that threshold. Maybe we are headed for the apocalypse, but I have no idea what I would think or what I would do if I had $40 billion. I don't know what I would think or do if I had $5 million. I don't think you could get $40 billion. Oh, I'm sure I can't get $40 billion. <laughs> You can't. No, but even if you wanted to, you couldn't, because you couldn't do the things that are required to do that. There's certain decisions you would have to make. There's a certain sociopathy that has to creep in for you to get to that scale. I kind of look at scale itself as the enemy, trying to operate at scale with almost anything, you know, and that could be even with public relations. How do we get a nation to think this instead of that? And once you move to scale, you've dehumanized it, you've depersonalized it. Once you're operating at scale, 
all of the kind of painstakingly evolved mechanisms for socializing, for establishing rapport, for empathy, they don't work anymore. You can't look at a billion people and have the same sort of empathy that you do making eye contact with one. I've gone to business schools and said, the job of this, my talk today, is to convince you to settle for tens of millions of dollars. And I know it's hard, but try to think to get yourself okay with earning just 20 or $30 million. That's it. That's all you're going to do. And then think about how many possibilities that opens. Do you imagine the escapist industry or the escapist market expanding more and more as we inch closer to, I was going to say as we inch closer to the apocalypse, but maybe that's not even the case, just as the hysteria and the anxiety build over the possibility of that. I mean, we just went through a, a once in a century pandemic. I mean, do you see this becoming not just a market or a thing for billionaires and millionaires, but a more common thing for for everyone? I mean, yeah, but I think our vision of it is going to shift dramatically. I think the idea for a person to have their own thing, their own bunker, becomes impossible to hold on to because it's so illogical. So that doesn't work. And people are going to be looking at the real imagined threats, which are, okay, we only have three more harvests left on this topsoil, but there's that permafrost melting up in Canada, and there's some nice soil over there. How do we get that stuff? But, oh no, there are all these people in South America and Central America and Mexico that are getting really hot, and they're coming up now. What do we do? The kinds of survival strategies we're going to see are going to be more nationalist and collective in the bad sense of the word, a more us against them. How do we keep them out of here? And that's, um, it's an extension of the billionaire mindset because it's us versus them. But I'm not right now optimistic that we have global or national institutions that are capable of negotiating mutual survival or solidarity across these boundaries. I think people are going to get zero sum about global resources really quickly. You say you're a humanist who's often mistaken for a futurist. A lot of what you write seems to be driven by a very humanist concern. I'm curious how this book fits into that mission of yours. Is it, is it some kind of, of rallying cry like Team Human was, or do you see it differently? I mean, Team Human was a rallying cry for people. That's really what we got to do. Meet your neighbors, look in their eyes. The more you do that, the more stress you take off the global systems, the more locally resilient you are, the more you take back land and learn permaculture and teach your children and all that. It's so simple. It's so straightforward that people don't believe it would work, but it actually does work. And it makes it easier for us to accept the climate refugees from everywhere else and to figure out what to do. So this book was not meant as a rallying cry so much as, even though our conversation was serious, as a black comedy. I met this guy who was head of one of the social networks where he came up with one of them. You're not allowed to say people's names from it, but he was really scared of AI. And he was like, Rushkoff, I've been looking at your tweets and stuff. You write a lot of really negative stuff about AI. Aren't you concerned that when the AIs are in charge, they're going to see what you posted and then come after you? And I was like, well, I hadn't really thought about it. And I said, what do you do? And he goes, oh, well, you know, I don't post anything at all about AI. I'm very selective about it. I don't really do anything. And I said, well, if the AIs are going to be that smart, aren't they going to be able to infer from your posting pattern that you are withholding how you actually feel about them? And they're going to know that you even feel worse about them than I do? Amazing. And he just goes, 
oh shit. Like he hadn't even thought of that, right? And this is a guy who knows programming and AI and artificial intelligence and machine learning way better than I do. So when you realize that these are the guys who have deemed themselves responsible for building game B or the next stage of humanity, if we can laugh at them and realize, oh, these are children. These are children who were plucked from college as freshmen by venture capitalists because they had good ideas. Before they developed impulse control, they transferred parental authority onto a venture capitalist, Peter Thiel. That's why they're these crazy children who seem to be running the world and that everybody seems to be thinking, oh, how can I do like Musk does? How can I do like that billion? No, that's not where it is. Don't look up, look down, look sideways, look at the other people. You know, so Team Human is kind of the answer to this. Don't be afraid of those guys and don't try to be like them. Laugh at them, laugh at them so you can move on. It's a weird, perverse, funny, tragicomic story (laughs) that we're kind of telling here. Where do you land? After finishing this book, do you feel better or worse about our collective future? Oh, I feel better because the actual answers are not engineering problems. It's way easier than that. Yeah. The homeless problem in Berkeley, California is not an engineering problem or a city problem. It's a human problem. And not to say humans are the problem and technology is the solution. No, everything's the problem and humans are the solution. So the way to deflate the power of these entities and to restore any sense of human dignity is to stop trying to kind of auto-tune human frailty out of the equation and instead embrace the weird quirkiness of everybody around you. Learn to tolerate other people again. So get into that. Get into your community. It's so much more important for someone to be able to talk with their neighbor than for them to have a great tweet. So I'm trying to refocus us, if anything, on the easy because bad things are going to happen for sure, but the decree will be greatly lessened in direct proportion to our capacity to engage meaningfully and purposefully with one another. I'm going to go drink some ayahuasca and meditate on that message. (laughs) (laughs) Microdose your ayahuasca, (laughs) see how that works. Well, damn, Doug, it's always a ride to talk to you. Well, thank you. It's as much as we can expect out of anything, I guess. She got a good ride. The book is Survival of the Richest, The Escapist Fantasies of Tech Billionaires. Douglas Rushkoff, thanks so much for doing this, man. Thank you. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drostowska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. All right. That was a lot of fun. Doug doesn't pull any punches, and I love that about him. I'm really curious what you thought about this whole conversation, though. Do you think he was too hard on those poor billionaire sociopaths? Or do you think he's right on the money? Let me know what you think. Drop us a line at area at Vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends, leave a review, tweet about it, make a parody account of Elon Musk, whatever you want to do. We appreciate it all. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.